You know those are some good announcements when you don't want to follow the announcements as a speaker, right? Wow. Wow. Uh, what vision. I was encouraged. Well, welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. Do me a favor, and if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles and your devices to John chapter 6. And we have been on quite a ride here in this chapter over uh, the last three Sundays. We've looked at Jesus walking on water calming the storm, proclaiming that he was sent from heaven uh, as the bread of life. As Nathan said last week, by the way, what a phenomenal message. I I would encourage you, if you haven't heard it, go back and watch it. Nathan said that um, for the first century, person bread was their everyday staple. Then he proceeded to show a litany of pictures that made us all really hungry. Can I get an amen to that? And, uh, but for them, it wasn't like, which bread do I choose? It was usually like one type of bread and they needed it to live. Uh, and, and quite frankly, in some third world countries today, they, they need that bread to, to live. And he said it was an everyday staple. They had to have it to live. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, oh, by the way, I, I am the bread sent from heaven. And if you eat of it, metaphorically, not only will you have eternal life, but you'll have life right now. You'll have abundant life. I love the, the line that Nathan gave us. To me, it summarizes not only the entire book of the Bible, um, the entire Bible, but also the book of John, and specifically John chapter 6. He said, when Jesus becomes everything, everything changes. Now get this, not one thing, not part of a thing, everything. That's called lordship, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to see for the rest of our chapter, this is exactly what Jesus demands, is that he is everything. Let's, let's go 30,000 feet here for just a second. Here are my two points from the beginning. We're going to look at there are um, false, as we look at our text, there are false disciples who actually walk away from Jesus. And then there are true disciples who they just won't go away from Jesus. Like they just can't leave him. Let me start with an, with an observation. Uh, most of us, not all, but most of us, we grew up in homes where we were taught uh, certain social skills, not not to be offensive, like not to offend people um, with our actions um, and not to offend people with our words, especially in the South, right? There's a whole lot of um, yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Oh, did I say something that upset? Forgive me, I'm sorry. There's a whole lot of um, us in this room, not all, but most of us in this room were taught um, not to offend people. But the reality... Reality is there's one thing in life, the most important thing in life, that is unavoidably offensive. It's called Christianity. Christianity is pure and simple. It is offensive. Now, it's also the most beautiful and life-giving and truthful reality in the world, um, but it's offensive. No, 
No amount of proper interpersonal skills or EQ can take away the rough edges of the Christian message of the gospel. Here are just a, a few of the ways that we offend people. Just as, as a refresher, the fact that we actually would say with a moral certainty what is right and wrong and what is good and evil. The fact that we would claim uh, it's only by faith in Jesus and no one else um, can you have your sins forgiven and be assured of, e of eternal life. That's pretty narrow-minded. The fact that we believe in such things as hell and eternal punishment. The fact that we believe that human beings are not inherently good but are born in sin and alienated from God and we desperately need redemption. The fact that we believe that the Bible is the absolute standard for truth and reality and not the culture around us. Even as I say these things, it's a little tense in here. You're like, whoa, can you, can you say those a little more quietly? Many of you um, in this room and those of you watching on, online, you remember something called the seeker-sensitive movement. Do you remember that? Raise your hand if you remember the seeker-sensitive movement. Right? And you're like, what? Well, it's still kind of going on. Yeah, yeah. Now, seeker-sensitive means uh, parking lot attendants and coffee and bagels that amen to the seeker-sensitive movement. But it's become a little bit more than that, right? Um, one of the goals of the seeker-sensitive movement was to minimize or remove anything, especially on, on a Sunday morning, that was offensive to unbelievers who might be seeking after Jesus. One, one little problem, and I want you to see it. This is really important. The most offensive thing about Christianity is Jesus. And he knows that. We're going to look at that this morning, as well as to the rest of, most of the rest of the Gospel of John. Now, from a distance, people, when they, they look at Jesus, are like, that dude's amazing. He's amazing. He's wonderful. He's, he's wise. Like, I'm pretty sure when I watch The Chosen, his eyes sparkle. Like, that's, wow. And we just saw this at Christmas time, right? A couple months ago, our culture sees Jesus as a cute little baby in a manger, all cuddly, and it's like, I'll take some of that Jesus. Until the infant grows up and reveals that, um, in fact, he is God incarnate. And he reveals that he is holy and that he's powerful. And, and his demands for exclusive allegiance to himself become known and then people take offense. Years ago, um, I was sharing about Christianity on a college campus, a, a, a public college campus, with a really smart um, intellectual unbeliever. He said, I'm, I'm not a follower. And I was laying down some apologetic truth bombs, right, about God and nature and design. And I'm, man, I'm, I'm hitting it all. I'm, I'm going cosmological, teleological design, ontological, the oddness of God. I mean, I'm ripping it. I'm going hard. And finally, the guy just stops me. He listened. And I'll never forget, he just says this. He said, um, sir, the problem with Christianity isn't all this stuff that you're talking about. He goes, I don't think Christians are stupid. I think you're pretty smart. He goes, the problem with Christianity is all the thing, things that Jesus says about himself. And he said this, I'll never forget. It was tongue in cheek, but he's like, have you read what he says about himself? 
Like, you know, he says he's God. Do you know, like, you read that, that book that you're trying to tell me about right now that it says that he, he died and then rose again and he sits to the right hand of the Father and he'll come back and jump. The problem with Christianity is not even Christians. It's not that you're not smart. The problem with Christianity is Jesus. To his audience, Jesus said hard and offensive things, and, and many of them said this, thanks, but, but no thanks. That's what we're gonna look at this morning. That's what we're gonna look at right now. Um, it, it may come as a shock to us as we look at the text that many of his, of his disciples were the ones who heard the words of Jesus and said, these words are too difficult, these words are too hard, and these were the ones who ended up leaving. Now, um, when we think, we think to ourselves, how, how can disciples do that? Well, we need to understand the word disciple, especially in John's gospel, doesn't always refer to those who are truly born again. In fact, um, anyone who followed Jesus for any reason whatsoever, maybe they were just infatuated with him um, or his miracles, or they liked that he stood up to the religious leaders, um, would be called a disciple. Here's a definition of a true disciple. I'm gonna go forward just a little bit. John chapter eight and verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said this, if you what? Hold, hold to my teachings. Hold to my teachings, then you really are my disciples. Pretty, pretty succinct definition. Merely saying um, that we believe doesn't necessarily make us a child of God, but if we hold to his teachings and pursue his will, then we are truly his disciples. All right, let's jump in, into our, our text. John chapter six and, and verse four, 48. Jesus said, I, I, am, I am the bread of life. And he's reiterating things now. He says, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here um, is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not, not die. Um, it's encouraging, anyone. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is it's my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And this throws them off, right? It's like, well, huh? Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, uh, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my, my blood is real drink. And we're just kind of losing our minds right now, and so are they. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, abides in me, stays with me, and I, I remain and abide and stay with them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread, me, will live forever. Verse 59, he said this while teaching uh, in church, right? <laughs> this wasn't some open air thing. This was in the synagogue at Capernaum. So um, we have a, a group of disciples, and Nathan brought this out beautifully last week, who appear to really like the fish and bread buffet, right? And the miracles. They like the fish and bread buffet, and they like the, the miracles, but they don't 
quite know what to do with the, the words of Jesus, the actual words of Jesus. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, uh, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? First thing we see this morning from our text is there are false disciples who sadly, sadly, who actually, they just walk away from Jesus. Now, this is interesting. Let's go back to verse 60. We're going to really unpack this. Uh, On hearing it, many of the disciples said this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Underline the word hard. Um, The Greek word for hard is scleros, which um, we get the word for um, uh, sclerosis from it. In other words, this is a spiritual hardening of the heart. Now, it doesn't mean difficult to understand. That's not the point. Jesus is not not saying um, this is like when you um, look at a test in high school and you have no idea what's on the math test. You ever been there, right? You get that that uh, geometry test and there's a proof on there and you're like, I don't, I'm done. I, I, that's not what he's saying. He's not, this isn't nuclear fission. You're like, I've, I'm a I'm a British lit. I don't understand nuclear fission. This isn't that kind of hard. He doesn't mean intellectually difficult or complex. Here's what he means, literal word, harsh, insensitive, intolerable, distasteful. It it wasn't that they, they couldn't understand what he was saying, they just, they didn't like it. Their response to Jesus when they heard him say these things wasn't like, say what? Or I'm sorry, what do you mean? Their response to Jesus was, ouch! Dude, it was all so good. Why did you have to go and say this? This hurts. It was hard for them. Now, you say, well, Lee, what what offended them? Let's go back to verse 60 again. On hearing it, Well, what's the it referring to? Well, I I think, I think, most scholars do too, he's talking about everything that we've covered so far in John 6, maybe even before that. Everything that we've looked at over the last month. Um, Maybe they didn't like the idea of relinquishing um, sovereignty over their own lives and giving him full control. Maybe um, some were upset, remember when, when they tried to, We saw this in Mark's gospel. They tried to make him king, and he said no. Like earthly king, not heavenly, earthly. So they took offense. He also claimed to be great. Nathan talked about this, greater than Moses. Moses gave you manna in the wilderness, but you you still died. I'm sure many didn't like Jesus saying he was greater than one of their favorite prophets. They loved the Mo man. Like in, in the history of prophets, Moses is right up there. And then he goes even further. And he says this, um, I have to tell you something else. I'm gonna give my flesh for the life of the world, so you're gonna have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. What was he talking about? His death. This is a lordship issue. Jesus is saying, um, you're gonna have to embrace the fact that I am 
the Messiah, the Savior, the only hope, the only bread of life who came down from heaven and you have to embrace me and my death and follow only after me. And so they were offended by his demands for exclusive loyalty and allegiance, his claims to be God, to do what Jesus said meant death to pride and, and self. And Jesus was aware of what was going on in the minds of the people. Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? It's interesting. He says, does this offend you? And then he transitions to verse 62 and he says, okay, if that offends you, then what if? We don't want to miss this. If all that I said offends you, what I'm about to say is going to really offend you. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Remember, ascension wasn't just a moment. It was a process. So when he says to them, what if you see the Son of Man ascend? It is go to a cross, ascend. Die, descend to the grave. Resurrect, ascend to the earth. Earth, ascension to the right hand of the Father. It's a process. If that really upsets you, all that I've said, wait till you see your Messiah hanging on a cross. Messiahs don't hang on crosses. Good Jews don't hang on, but Messianic Jews don't hang on crosses. Underline the word offend. This is where we get um, our word scandalize or scandalizo. In the first century, it was typically used to refer to a trap to catch animals or, or refer to a large stone in the middle of a, of a path that would trip you up. So, so Jesus is conscious that his disciples are, are grumbling. So he basically says to them, does this cause you to stumble? Do my words trip you up? So they went from, from grumbling to stumbling. And what caused this? Well, we just talked about it, the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, the cross. It is a stumbling block. It is a scandal to the Jews, and it's just foolishness to the Gentiles. Here's what he's saying to them. Let, let me summarize. Um, have I killed your hopes by what I've said? You are so enamored by what I did you were so fast to embrace the works and you wanted more works. Um, and then the words came. Have I literally killed your hopes? Uh, it's obvious that I've said too much for you and it's causing you to grumble and it's causing you to stumble. And now he adds this comment in verse 63. And it really makes sense if you think about it, right? He says, the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of, capital S, the Spirit and, and life. Now, why does um, he insert that right after this statement uh, about the cross, about their, their grumbling and their stumbling? Here's what I think. I think Jesus is saying, what will bring you to understand who I am and what I'm claiming in such a way that you won't take offense isn't your own wisdom, but it's solely and strictly by the work of Holy Spirit who opens your eyes and your heart to that truth. In other words, you need the Spirit of God to understand what I'm saying. You, you can't grab this in your mind, your heart, with your flesh, and wrestle with it and go, yeah, 
I get it, you can't. Holy Spirit has to illuminate, has to open up your eyes and your mind and your heart to what I'm saying. Now, Jesus knows that not everybody um, is gonna respond. Verse 64, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. It says here that he knew from the beginning exactly uh, who wouldn't believe in him and, and that's why he repeats himself in verse 65. Remember last week Nathan pointed out in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And now he says it again. Verse 65, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. So like Nathan said last week, if people are, are to come to Jesus, if they're to see the significance of his miracles and understand um, his claims, it's gonna be because the Spirit has given them life. It will not be their flesh that accomplishes this. And I already know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, well Lee, does this mean that we're like robots? And God just calls us to salvation and we have no say in the matter. Like you're just walking along, you hear the gospel, I give my life to Jesus, I'm a follower. Is that what you're saying? I, I would say that is not the case. Uh, and by the way, good people would differ with me. People in this room, people online, people throughout the ages, people on staff, maybe an elder or two, I, I don't know. Some people would say more like, hey, he calls you, you got no choice in the matter. It's a little more complicated than that. Here's what, here's what I would say. Holy Spirit woos us. It's part of what he does. He's the advocate. He's the paraclete. He comes alongside. He convicts of sin and righteousness. And he draws us, and he draws us to this place where we then go, oh, I have, a, I have an opportunity to make a decision to follow Jesus. At that point, it's up to me. I call it the, 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 both, the both and. Holy Spirit draws us, opens my eyes, I go, what the? And right there in that moment, I can say yay or nay. I'm gonna leave it um, right there and cause some of you to lose your minds, but we have to go on, okay? So let's continue. We know that Jesus had gathered a pretty large following up until this point. It appears as though thousands of people had been following him, maybe tens of thousands everywhere, um, maybe looking for another miracle. But as soon as he began, as they began to realize that he insisted on exclusive devotion to himself and that he claimed um, to be the only way to eternal life, they, they just sort of, and this is really sad, they just sort of start to drift away. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Um, by the way, this happens everywhere. This happens at New Heights and every church that has ever preached the gospel. Um, people come um, to New Heights for many different reasons. Maybe they were invited by a friend or a family member, by the way, uh, if this is your first time to New Heights or it's the first time you're watching, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. Um, maybe people heard about our, our worship, which is amazing, um, or the fact that we care so deeply 
for our city, for the poor, the downcast, the outcast. Maybe um, people um, come to here and see our ridiculously handsome teaching team. <laughs> or maybe it's the community which is um, phenomenal. But maybe in 30 plus years of pastoral ministry, I, I can count on my fingers and toes where I've seen this, sadly. Maybe one day it just dawned on them. These people, they really believe the words they're singing. All hail King Jesus? Savior of the world, what? Sounds pretty exclusive. These people really believe what Jesus is saying. They really believe what that book that they, they follow, the Bible, is teaching. Are you kidding me? No thanks. No thanks. And the next thing you know, they're gone. They just drift away. I, I'm thinking about this, I was wondering, how would Jesus have felt thousands if not tens of thousands of people are following him? It would be, it would be, and they're gone. It would be like a mega church has got an auditorium of 5,000 people, it's full. Like you can barely get in one Sunday and the next Sunday there's only 12 people and um, one of them's the devil. That's all that's left. So was he grieved by their reaction? Of course he was but he wasn't surprised or he wasn't frustrated. So what does he do? Verse 67, he's building here. Um, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the 12, what do you guys want to do? Doesn't sound like he's forcing anybody, does it? Are you gonna join, are you gonna join the crowd, the masses, the majority. Is this too hard for you to embrace? Or are you going to start grumbling and stumbling as well? Second thing this morning, we're going to see from our, our text, um, there are true disciples who um, won't go away from Jesus. Like they just can't quit Jesus. He turns to his inner circle, his 12, and he says, are, are are, are you leaving too? And then Peter, as he often does, speaks up, as we say in the South, bless his heart. He says, verse 68, um, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One uh, uh, of God. Simon Peter, speaking for the rest, as he always did, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the key, right? We accept not only your works, but we accept your words. Peter is saying something like this. Lord, um, you are not easy to hang out with all the time. And sometimes you embarrass us and often you frighten us. We don't always understand you. And yet your words are the most remarkable that we have ever heard. Here's Jesus, a man utterly devoid 
of hypocrisy. Unlike the religious leaders, here's a man who actually heals people and loves people and teaches like no other person has ever taught. He's kind, wise, gentle, powerful. Why would they want to look for anybody else? So let, let me ask you this morning, and this is not a trick question. I'm not trying to play Holy Spirit here. I just want you to sit in this for just a few seconds. Let me ask you, personalize this. Why are you a Christian? I don't want you to, well, my grand, my mom, my, my wife made, why are you, you personally, Think about it. Let me um, give you my answer. It's, it's one word. I think you know what it is. Jesus. Uh, I have tasted and seen Jesus. Where am I going to go? I remember my old way of life. And I know it's a little complicated for those. Maybe you gave your life at four. Like my wife did. Praise God. But you're like, I, you know, not much of an old life between one and three, right? I get that. Praise God, by the way. She doesn't have um, a brutal testimony like I do. But I... I also have the, I think it's unique, but maybe many in this room have experienced this as well. On one side of my family, hardworking, salt of the earth, blue collar. Other side, hardworking, um, not that they're not salt of the earth, but very white collar, very wealthy. Both sides, and I'm old enough now to have more perspective because I've done funerals and all that good stuff. Both sides, apart from Jesus, absolutely miserable. I've been there. I've done that. Go back to Ecclesiastes and, and, and look at what Solomon says about trying everything under the sun. Um, he tries everything under the sun at levels that you and I will never experience. And he has one word to describe everything. What is it? Do you remember? You can say it. Yeah, vanity or meaningless. I mean, I, every time I read it, I'm just, it's, it's comical to me. He didn't see God once or twice. He saw God face to face three times, whatever that means. Heard the voice of God. And still he turns from God. At the end of his life, he turns back to God. But along the way, he's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a workaholic, an alcoholic, a sexaholic, an intellectualaholic. And I've got one word to describe all those things. Meaningless. So why am I a Christian? Well, I would respond by saying what, what Peter did. To whom shall I go? And this is for me, um, nobody. I want you to see this. Nobody else will love me the way Jesus does. I don't care what anyone says. Ruth's amazing. She's not Jesus. I got a pretty good mom. She's still alive. She's not Jesus. Nobody. Nobody else tells me the truth like Jesus does. 
Nobody um, else will always be there when I need him most like Jesus does. It's some of my lowest points in my life. I'm like, where are my friends? Crickets. We gone. We gone. Oh, oh, thank you, Jesus. No one else can comfort me in suffering like Jesus has. Nobody else can reassure my heart when doubts arise like Jesus does. Nobody else can give me peace in the midst of turmoil like Jesus does. Nobody else can teach with the authority that Jesus, that Jesus has. I love this. Nobody else will accept me as I am. No strings attached the way Jesus does. Ruth would say this. Lee is an acquired taste. I'm a little intense. As I've gotten older, I'm less. I'm very competitive. I'm that crazy guy who wakes up happy, goes to bed happy. Ruth's like, you drive me nuts. A little less happy. You know what's amazing about that? Not all of it, but most of it. Jesus is like, that's how I made you. Man, I just smile when you be you. I just smile. Nobody else can die for my sins the way Jesus did. No one else has ever risen from the way, risen from the dead the way Jesus did. No one intercedes for me at the right hand of the Father the way Jesus does. And there is no philosophy, no political party, no power, no amount of money or prestige that can do for me what Jesus does. If you have found Jesus to be like that, where else can you go? Who else can measure up to that? This is the testimony of those um, who walk with him and follow him. Here is, I didn't put it on the screen, maybe second service I will. Here's one of the greatest definitions, I think, best definitions of a Christian that I've ever heard. Here it is, you ready? Someone who cannot quit. Years ago, I discipled a relatively new believer. And one day we met up and he said to me, he said, Lee, I can't make it. Um, he said, I can't do this. And I'm like, you, like our meeting time, we can change that. And he said to me, no, no, no. I mean, I can't continue to be a Christian. He says, it's too hard. I blow it all the time. I'm a hypocrite. I'm, I'm, I'm bailing out. And I knew this guy had been radically changed by Jesus. I knew he was a new creation. I watched him grow in the Lord. I saw him go from darkness to light. So I said to him, I thought for a second, I was stunned. I said, um, and this is, I think it was from God. I said, really? I said, that's, that's what you wanna do. Go ahead, do it. I think you're right. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> he paused and he looked at me and he said this. He said, Lee, you know I can't do that. And he said this, he really did. He goes, where else would I go? I can't quit this. I can't quit this. I think this is what Peter is saying to Jesus. Let's, um, let, me, let me wrap some of this up. Um, by saying this, and this is because I know the unspoken throughout John chapter six is, whew, um, 
it's pretty discouragingly all the unbelief in this chapter. If, I don't want you to glaze over that, Lee, and I don't want to glaze over that. Thousands of people watched and, and were blessed as, as Jesus fed them with only a few loaves of bread and, and two fish, but the majority of them didn't believe him for who he was. Um, when we come to the end of the chapter, it appears that, that only 11 are left who truly believe. And this begs the question, does this mean that Satan is winning? No. In fact, to prove that he, he isn't winning, now get this, God puts a devil right in the midst of the 11 apostles. He said, whoa, 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 be careful there. Let's read it together. John chapter six, verse 70. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you the 12, yet one of you is a devil? Now, if I were to reinterpret it the way I want to interpret it, it would be, have I not chosen you the 11 and a devil snuck in? Is that what it says? And then to, to emphasize it even more, verse 71, like almost like a parenthetical secret, he says he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the 12 was later to betray him. He's one of the 12. And, and he's there to do precisely what God has ordained and planned for him to do. I see this as an incredibly comforting truth that God is, is so sovereign, even over the most disappointing and confusing of experiences. Jesus chose all 12 of them, knowing full well from the beginning that one of the 12, Judas, would betray him. Please hear this. Nothing, not even the presence among the 12 of a devil, a betrayer, a liar, can thwart God's purposes in our lives. Can I get an amen to that? In actuality, he fulfills God's purposes. No circumstance, no matter how devastating and disappointing, can ultimately thwart or reverse or overcome, overcome God's purpose for you and me if we're a child of God. You go, man, I got a boss who's the devil. Rock on. What does that look like? I think I married a devil. He's not a believer. What does it look like for him to come to know Jesus? I'm going to a family reunion. Lots of devils hanging around the cheese dip. I get it. I get it. This is the way to end this message, right? There's a devil in the midst, but God is sovereign. We will overcome. It wouldn't be fair, nor would it be biblically appropriate for me to end the talk this way. Let, let me end on a little bit of a negative, okay? A word of warning for all of us. Judas saw everything that Peter saw. How many times have you heard that? Well, if I just, if I just saw a miracle, I would, if the Razorbacks could just win a football championship, I'd come to Jesus. That might be too big of a miracle, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> I kid because I care. You know how much I love the Razorbacks. Judas saw everything Peter saw. He heard everything John heard. He witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 like Matthew did. With James in the boat, he saw Jesus walk on 
water with Bartholomew. He saw the wind and the way. Yet he didn't believe Jesus. Instead, he betrayed Jesus. I don't have time. This is a whole nother message, but please hear this. One said, I am offended. Eleven others said, we're in love. So let me close with a question to those of you who are not Christians. Or maybe you're here this morning or watching online and you are just sort of drifting away. Where else can you go? Where else can you turn? Who else can you trust? Who can satisfy your deepest longings and bring joy and peace and hope to your hearts the way Jesus does? At this time, I want the prayer team to come on up. If you are new to New Heights, you know that this is a a sacred time for us. We call it our ministry time. Of course, the whole service is sacred, but this is a time to reflect on everything from parking your car to this very moment, everything that you have been experiencing. Uh, Lobby community, to worship, to teach. So I'm gonna encourage you, if you're at that place in your life, you're like, I'm not a Christian, but boy, I'm interested, I am seeking. Now is the time to go talk to somebody on the prayer team. And they're going to point you to Jesus. They're not going to point you to a denomination, to a personality other than Jesus, to a political movement, to a structure. They're going to point you to Jesus. Now's the time. Maybe you're like, I, for all sorts of reasons, I have been bombarded and, and I'm... I thought of myself as a Christian, but for whatever reason or reasons, I'm drifting away. I want to talk to somebody about that. I want someone to pray for me. Well, now's the time. Maybe you're here this morning and you you see off to my left, we call it the baptistry. It's just a tub of water where we baptize people. And you're like, I know that's a clear command of Scripture. I know I need to tell people that my sins have been buried and I've been risen up to new life and as an act of obedience. And I need to do that. Do it today. Talk to somebody. We can make it happen right now. We can make it happen next service. We can schedule. Um, by the way, we don't have like a baptismal tally count. We don't do that. Uh, we get excited about baptism is because it's believers getting obedient with Jesus. And that's always the, a better way, Right? Every Sunday, we also get the chance here to take communion together. We get the chance uh, to eat his flesh, the bread, and drink his blood, the juice. And we do this in remembrance of his sacrificial death for our sins. How amazing is that? To me, I think of this as every Sunday as as a lordship moment. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're not only proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, but we're saying this, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. 
take it and, and use it as you see fit. May we live sacrificially the way you died sacrificially for us. Let me pray. Father, we, we pray against hard hearts this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do what you do best, and that's soften. It's woo, convict, draw, open up eyes, open up hearts and minds, God. I have never saved anybody with my words. Do what we can't do as teachers, and that's bring conviction and ultimately salvation, God. I pray this morning that people would come face to face with Jesus and realize he's more than enough. It's more than enough. God, for those who are struggling with their faith, there's freedom there. Jesus isn't going to make them do anything. And so I pray that they would circle back to that first love. And today would be a day of repentance and renewal and revival. But only you can do that. Do it, I pray in Jesus' name.